So now we're in phase two, at least the way that I see it. I'm sure some people would have different concepts of what that phase switch would be. I remember the moment when phase two began for me. So phase two, I'm naming Slack to Torpor. Uh, 95 to 99. <clears throat> so 95 felt different to me immediately. So uh, I remember my a good friend of mine, Rick Kronberg, were both raging pavement fans from the beginning. Back in my hometown of Livingston, New Jersey, he called me and said, dude, I got the new single of the, the new pavement single called Rattled by La Rush. <clears throat> so I drove over to his house, walked into his room and he started playing it and I, it didn't, I didn't connect with it. That was the first release from you guys where I felt like I it, like I was missing what was um it's not like that characterized the time for the next five years you guys would make some incredible music and some of the best of your career that was just the first moment where I felt like I I don't understand what they're going for here um, me neither I give it two stars I mean I think I agree with everything that you said and I didn't really get it either and I think it was just kind of fulfilling an ob obligation <laughs> To Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and if you're tuning in for the first time, ask yourself this. Do you think most modern discussions about music lack a certain fire and perspective? If the answer is yes, then welcome home. Please join our Facebook group discography soldiers of sound if you're a music fan it's going to be just as crucial as this podcast in a whole different way you get an irreverent daily dose of music history coming attractions insider scoops and a direct connect if you want to dish out on how to make the show better if such a thing is even possible because everybody's got an opinion we're on instagram and twitter too but the facebook group's a community so it's going to be more interactive and fun my recommendation, if you like what you hear, is to join the group. Then while you're at it, join up on the rest of the platforms too. Then please rate the podcast five stars along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're on Apple, Spotify, or Podchaser. It'll help a lot. And then spread the word. Tell every single person you've ever met about Discography. On whatever platform you do call home, You'll be privy to a never-ending flow of ongoing bonus content and encouraging words of wisdom on how to never, ever give up on your rock and roll dreams of maintaining a Lester Bangs-like perspective deep into adulthood. And if you're like me and enough's just never enough, then you just stepped in shit, my friends. Visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is unquestionably the ultimate music deep dive. There are multiple tiers available at $5, $10, $20, $30, and $40 a month, through which to gain entry to the psychedelically mind-melting music funhouse of Discograffiti's Patreon. Find the most expensive one that's right for you, so we can keep this thing owned and operated by us and for us, because corporate magazines still suck. As you know, for the weekly Patreon episodes I'm assembling from this epic, sprawling interview, there's no real outtakes per se. Those all ended up in the garbage. What I've assembled is only the off-topic stuff we wandered into, which was very often actually. So all the rest of the good stuff is all tucked nicely and neatly away in the Nastanovich Patreon collection, a batch of Bob bonus clips coming at you weekly 
All of it essential, just too off-topic to keep in the main show, and it'll be available only on the lieutenant tier and above. Okay, back to the free shit. Don't forget, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. This is an invaluable resource if, like Bob and I, you just hate listening to shitty songs. Lastly, but not leastly, a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to Joe Cravino, who helps with posting the show, Todd Zimmer, who does art and graphics, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, without whose invaluable help and or morale-boosting support, I'd be 100% dead in the water. I can't thank you enough. I care too much about this show to be easy to deal with, so also, I'm sorry. Okay, back to business. First things first... You need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography's heavily researched, and the music's always reassessed with fresh ears. We're not just covering albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, cause singles, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. In this episode of Discography, we'll be turning our spray cans back on pavement. This is actually part four of an incredible six-part series designed to play throughout the duration of their 2022 reunion tour. Part four takes place from 1995 to 1996, and if you're a pavement fan, you know exactly what that means. We're in the wowie zowie era, guys and gals. Well, good, because I didn't want you to think I was being overly... Uh, or unnecessarily harsh. It was just legitimate. You could, you could tell me that you hated everything that Pavement ever made. I mean, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I mean you well, know. To come before that, in 94 was the Range Life single. I put the Range Life single in phase two because it was the first time that I had noticed a new changing sound that felt a little less like cats fighting in a sack and more streamlined, more calm than approachable with that uh, roller ring keyboard. Yeah, it's cool. So you have Raft and Coolin' by Sound on that one. Yeah, Coolin' by Sound is kind of a cool Canberg song. Yeah, 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 that one I like. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And Raft is cool, too. We've actually played Raft a bunch live. I mean, it just didn't make the cut for the albums of that era, but I thought it was kind of cool in its own way. You know, a lot of those songs would have been created then you know, we were playing live so often then that that they were definitely given a twirl both during sound checks and on the occasional set list because it's kind of exciting to go see bands and and then hear it have the entire crowd hear an unreleased song and oh yeah. I mean I remember you know, that the 80s with the bands I really liked. And it, it's just a way to like wet appetites. And um, I, I was quite surprised that Raft and several other songs didn't make it to one of the actual albums. And one of the unique things about Wowie Zowie um, is that a lot of that album is success stories of what I just spoke of, of songs that had been tossed around for 12 to 18 months messed around with sort of grew a lot grew during sound checks became right. teasers like, and live sets and stuff like from, that from when from when steve west first entered the band you guys were touring with a bunch of these tracks insane amounts of touring yeah so before all over the world i mean it was super fun but it was, <laughs> it was before we get to wowie i give uh the range life single four stars it's range life and what else again 
Range Life, Raft, and Coolin' by Sound. I'll give it five. I think it'd be a really cool thing for a pavement fan to own. I don't I don't think I have one. I have it. Yeah. I, I'm not going to buy it from you. <laughs> <laughs> How fucked up would that be if I just wanted to sell you all my old pavement stuff? I'll uh, take the hearing aid over the Range Life 12 inch. <laughs> It's a look. If you guys are doing official pavement pierogies, it's time for pavement hearing aids too. Oh, definitely hearing aids. Although the pierogies will be fantastic. We've got yeah, they will know, be. one I... of the most um, <laughs> somebody's higher level in pavement ever was in the pierogi world making the pierogies. So <laughs> it's so fucking funny, man. Lydia's America's number one pierogi creator. <laughs> I like your pronunciation of creator. All right, so it came out in 96, but it it originated in 95. I'm talking about Medusa Cyclone, Pavement, Split 7-inch. There's an early version of Dancing with the Elders that's without piano and with a weird coda that was yanked for the Wowie Zowie version. I give that four stars. Same. That's cool. Yeah, same. Okay. All right, now we're on Wowie. All right, let's talk about Wowie Zowie here. And so by minute, the way, it's my favorite pavement record. I give it a five and um, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, I'm, I'm going to refer to it heretofore as dick sucking fool at pussy looking school because you guys blew it. Should have had that as the title. That was Steven's use. He stuck that there. It was obnoxious and it was never supposed to come to light, but it was just, it was potty mouth juvenilia. Hey, we were all young once. So I felt when I was sitting in my friend's room that maybe your first great era had come to an end. Everyone has different feelings about Wowie Zowie, and it's an endlessly interesting record because it's your White Album. So it's a, it's kind of a Whitman sampler. If you don't like one style of music, there's always the next thing that's, you know, I just listened to a, a Billy Press. Let me interrupt you real quick, and I'll say that's why "Rattled by the Rush" is okay. Because even though I didn't, I didn't like it as a song individually. It actually fits for the reason that you just described on this album. Yeah, um, because black and, that, and that's you know my least "Rattled by the Rush" is by far my least favorite song on the record, but it fits in the context of this album. Everything else on here is vital, and the most significant thing about this record is it's of all the pavement records and you know actually being a bad insider that's the it's the album where all five band members are vital to the album and that's the only right. payment record that you can say that all five people involved with it are vital to the album i mean you could say it about bright in the corners but really more so with this album because a lot of the songwriting process you could attribute to all five members so there's a lot of so obviously Stephen should be named as the main songwriter on 16 of the 18 songs but in terms of doing their job sonically um everybody made a contribution to just about every song it's about an hour long it's your longest longest studio album it's a double album but it's three sides and side four was left blank the singles, Rattled by the Rush and Father to a Sister of Thought, were odd singles. Uh, well, it's because what would you choose if you had to choose two singles from this record? Now, I would have chosen Father to a Sister of Thought and Grounded. Grounded, or, for sure. Or, uh, I, bold, I can tell you, would have chosen AT&T, which really could have been, which is a really great pavement song until like the last 45 seconds in which it just kind of falls apart into this 
it just is like 85% of like a really great song. I think that if Camberg had ever had a single, then Kettle District, closest thing that he ever had to a pavement single. I think that, that song is Half a Canyon could have been a single, but it's six yeah. minutes and ten minutes long. Kennel District would have been a hit, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and it's um, also my favorite. So yeah, I mean, there was so if there was one poor song. choice on here. It's that Rattled by the Rush was made a single, and I think that Stephen would probably readily admit that that was his, a bad choice on his part as a single. He said that his judgment may have been clouded by excessive marijuana usage, but both songs at the time sounded like hits to him. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, there's a lot of songs on here that sound like hits. He just had to choose something. Yeah, so, you know, yeah exactly, you know, exactly. I don't care if he was living in Portland in a tent using fentanyl. It, it would have been hard for him to choose two singles off this album because unlike previous pavement records or records that came after this there aren't obvious there's like not at all 12 yeah. or 13 songs on here that could be singles including That's... pueblo i mean some people would pueblo's on a lot of people's top 10 or 20. so wowie zowie is apparently the only pavement album entirely sequenced by Malkmus. So, and I know it's been documented that's, that Scott Camberg for this one preferred a much more cohesive set of about 10 songs, but uh, it was important for Malkmus to have something that was kind of much more freewheeling. Yeah, I mean, I think he made a great choice. I think that, you know, Scott was definitely probably thinking um, from a business perspective sure. about the 40 minute form. And, you know, Stephen's like decided, um, and he had, you know, the executive status, for lack of a better term, to do so to like just make the whole thing in one fell swoop, um, you know. So, yeah, I mean, the, you know, a lot of bands did that, whether they made three albums or 30. And he just decided that this was going to be his extra long record, maybe perhaps to sort of end the era. And of this, then, of course, we went to Bright in the Corners. We sort of returned to, you know, more more traditional album length for our remaining two records. There's, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six. I think there's seven great songs on this record. It's, I think there's 17, so, you know. No, I know. I, I know it's your favorite. There's a lot of great stuff that I've, I've always loved on this. Um, but ultimately, I don't, I don't connect with it in the same kind of way, but there's some really indisputably amazing shit on this. We Dance is, you know, the first, the first thing out of the gate there. And, um, wh why is there no castration fear? Was there a castration fear before? No. Um, it was like uh, basically a song that's heavily influenced by the likes of the Frogs and Incredible String Band. You know, Stephen Stephen was sort of enamored with um, you know kind of freaky folk stuff. Um, my favorite thing about what you just said is uh, you group those two bands together as if they have anything to do with each other. Um, I guess they sort of do in a certain way in terms of their baroque quirkiness. They're both equally amazing, that's for sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't know how much crossover there is amongst their fan bases. But yeah, so We Dance, um, I mean, I I've always loved it. It's one of the most brilliant cover musicians of her of her era is um, Cat Power, yes. um, Sean Marshall. I think she's done a lot of, I mean, obviously, her original music's great, too, but... She's done a lot of really cool covers, and yeah, I know she's been a supporter of both Silver G's and Pavement. Because usually when people cover Pavement songs, I think their version is really cool, and in some ways, 
just as good or better than the original, like the twist, like um, whatever Nickel Creek doing, um, Spin on a Stranger. So, yeah, no, We Dance is, um, it's very, very kind of sickening in a, in a great way. And um, it's wait, kind wait, of like... Talk about sickening. What do you mean by that? It's creepy. I mean, <laughs> that's all. I, it's and, uh, you know, it's, I would never, that adjective would not cross my mind to describe it. I'm curious what you mean by that. Just playing, pretending you're a freak. Yeah, yeah. That's all. Unfortunately, none of us are particularly freaky, so we have to pretend. Right, right. And so, so basically, it's fun to like do that. Like, you know, obviously, we're fans of a lot of freaks and music and otherwise. Waiting in line behind Tiny Tim to get back in the country at JFK after he broke the world's world record for continuous performance of tiptoe through the tulips in bristol the night before when i was like 17 years old i mean like so i'm watching that guy i'm standing behind him in line at jfk to get back in the, in the country and I'm, I'm just like this guy's amazing i guess i should have mentioned tiny tim who who had nothing to do with we dance there's people that make you squirm um or, or music that makes you squirm in a good way um we dance basically one of pavement's attempts at such a vibe and i think we pulled it off i think i admit it to me it's a great song and it's a great album starter it it is both both those things it's a great song great album starter i had already heard rattle by la rush and uh you you know i talked with you about about how that made me feel Uh, i mean it's good it's just clunky it's just i feel like it was sort of some weird attempt at doing bad company yeah i don't know if yeah i mean that's what it ended up sounding like and obviously that wasn't the goal i mean the pavement ever wanted to sound like bad company for god's sake um yeah no it's just it's clunky it just i guess the rhythm was awkward it just never i'm sure it was a real pain in the butt from a structure and sort of you know drummer's math sort of perspective it just is an uncomfortable song i mean i don't think it's horrible okay by any means but it was so disjointed live that it's always kind of left a bad taste in my mouth and i'm happy that we didn't have to play it any time after. You know, what I love about We Dance, obviously, is that the the album starts off. This this is, you know, this s- sounds a world away from Slay Tracks. And that's an amazing thing because there's certain bands that you're, you're counting on them to sound exactly the same from album to album. And Malcolmus was an exciting songwriter. Why would anybody do that? Why would okay. anybody want? I mean, like, it's like, okay, say, you're, are you a Ramones fan? Yeah. Of course. Okay, so Ramones, I mean, Ramones provide that sort of consistency. But right. doesn't that mean at the end of the day that you'd really need to own like one or two Ramones albums or just like a greatest hits compilation if they're overwhelmed by sameness? I mean, well, I mean, I'm not dissing the Ramones because I know they're like absolute punk rock legends and groundbreakers and change the face of, of this and that. It's just like, I don't reach it, for them. I mean, I beat on a brat school. Okay, here's another here's another example. Okay, because I don't think it's an invalid way to go. The band, the Sundays. I love the Sundays. Only three. Sundays are very very gorgeous sounding band. Okay, so Harriet Wheeler. There would be no complete complete badass. Yeah, total badass. I would never had she continued. I would never have wanted her to quote unquote grow as a songwriter. She was like one of those masters of that sort of breezy gorgeous pop and that's a thing you know right so, so when exactly. you're talking about pavement a band that's tackling so many influences and really just i don't know harriet wheeler she probably likes 500 more bands than i do or whatever but pavement was sort of determined to as we went along it's always trying to want to sort of tackle something new and sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't but you know that was that was part of the challenge because steven who obviously wrote most of this material can be easily bored so like he's got to entertain himself you know and then he's got it you know throughout the course of these 
tours where he's playing these songs um, multiple times. Like mostly the reason why songs were dropped was because not because they were bad. It's just that he got, he gets sick of playing them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can imagine like I'm a background performer. So like every single show is, I mean, I, I mean, it's not boring, but I mean, if I was in his position, if I tried to put myself in his shoes then then I can understand why he would, I don't want to play this tonight. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, I mean, the more variety and the more challenge, and then, you know, obviously we're a band that's never known for our consistency in our live show in any way, shape or form, but at least even if we were awful, we were awful doing 19 different things in 19 songs. Maybe we get, three of the 19 right i mean it's just one of the so the most badass thing about this whole record i think is at the end of we dance here's an album that's stuffed to the gills with ideas genres you know flights of fancy all kinds of whatever he wants right like to keep him interested to keep you guys engaged and then in the tag at the coda of this song it sounds as it's fading as if he's starting a whole different song I love that. I've always loved that. That's kind of tacked into the fade. It's that it's included. Um, they see what he's doing is he's pretty much staying in the same mindset and like pretending that there's a second song on an album. that's very much in the vibe of we dance. Super creative time, obviously for you guys. Well, we had, this is the album where we had so much of this material and this was probably the only thing that should have been a deluxe edition because there was so, I mean, there, there was so much content. Yeah. That's why that's why it's fifty five minutes long, fifty six minutes long. This because is I mean, I, I know, and you can like, and the thing is, like, if there are weak moments on this record, that's also also by design. In some way, I mean, like, you know, it's supposed to be mind boggling and deceptive and glorious, and it's all about dynamic and variety. It, it's just a pavement album that you know, different recording aesthetic styles. I mean, this is easily in Memphis, which was such a happy place in terms of recording studios for uh, such a comfort zone. You just felt very comfortable in there. Doug and Davis, the engineers, Memphis was great. Sherman, Wilmot, our host, you know, Bone Shangri-La Records at the time, we stayed above it. It was just, we were very much um, in our element, very comfortable. You know, it was really nice to enter a recording studio and have so much material and actually be a band where all five members were actively participating in the creative process right. and had done for the months on the Crooked Rain tour. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you can hear you guys are engaged. Was it a happy time for you guys? Yeah, they all were really. I mean, oh, that's good. I mean, it was just like, you know, that's the funny thing about people when they think about bands. Like if you're on a road trip with your friends, let's say like you and your four best friends from when you were 26 go on a 25 or 30 day vacation. Every day is not going to be a happy day. Somebody's going to be a jackass. One day is going to get on everybody's nerves. Somebody's going to overreact to something. Somebody's going to lose something. <laughs> That's just the way it is. I mean, if it, if there's anybody who gets along beautifully for 30 days while traveling along, playing like gigs on tour, which is, it's an easy job in some ways, but it's also not an easy job in terms of sleep deficit and irritability. So, I mean, I mean there's going to be like, you know, and pressure and like, you know, people that get on your nerves and da, 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 da. So, I mean, it's just the way it is. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to be like some corny jerk and say like, there's a total brotherhood going on here or any of that crap. Like we're blood brothers, man. But I mean, everybody in the band liked each other and always did. I mean, or else we would, there's no 
way that we'd be a band. I mean, you know, so some, obviously you. I guess, I guess I'm more curious like that, you know, that moment that has been written about to death about, you know, uh, Stephen wearing the, the handcuffs at that show. If that kind of stuff came out of the blue or if there was a, if there was a build up. Uh, he's just being, he's being dramatic. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it was just like, I don't even know where they came from. He probably thought of it just on his own. Like, you know, so people would write about it, you know I mean? Who knows? I mean, yeah. it didn't matter anyways. I mean, the pavement ending at the end of the 90s, like, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. <laughs> I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I mean, we had done a lot of stuff, and I would say seven or eight or nine completely different bands amongst all of our releases, um, you know, not only personnel-wise, but mindset. It was just a, an interesting thing about being a band that never really lived in the same place. And um, tough. it was good in a way because... You go home to your life within a few days, um, you know, you do your laundry and you get a few good nights sleep and it's like you're not in a band anymore. You know, if you live in the middle of nowhere like Steve West or, you know, Louisville where if anybody liked Pavement, they never really made it clear because they were so, sort of annoyed by the fact that some dude from Pavement had moved into their town until they realized that I was only there for the horse racing. Right. Um, like I'm gonna I'm gonna go in there and study the scene and like steal ideas off of Rodan for God's sake. Totally random thought, but I don't think I've ever actually bought a racing form. My dad showed me that on the way into any track, you just find somebody who's leaving and and buy it off them or get it off them. Usually they throw it down. You can look in trash cans and hope that soda or tobacco spit hadn't landed on it. You know, racing forms used to be four bucks, now they're like twelve. So I remember a buck. I remember a dollar. That's when I was going for a form. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, maybe. In the late 80s, maybe. that's when I was going. No way. A program, maybe not a form. Okay. okay. Whatever. I'm sorry, dude. Like, I'm not going to argue about the price of the racing car. <laughs> okay, so the next track on the record, Blackout, from the very first moment I heard it, always been my favorite song on the record. I always loved Steve's way with a song like this. I think a lot of his slower paced material is some of his best. This one, while it fits perfectly in its placement on the record and it fits perfectly on the record as a whole, it really would have also fit uh, amazingly well on Bright in the Corners. It's a really good, well-constructed pop song with cool lyrics that obviously easily could have been in the three minute form, but is in the two minute form, which probably even makes it that much more attractive. It's a nice little nugget of a pavement song, which sort of shows where Steven was in terms of quality pop sensibilities at this point in his career. It's really indicative of what a great songwriter he was clearly uh, turning into. Once he stripped all that early static off, it became quite obvious that he had a gift. It was just as good back then. He just didn't have the confidence that he had, the confidence or experience. I mean, yeah. basically his attitude about all of this is like, as you sort of grow and get more confident, then basically you don't hide your vocals in the mix. I mean, I mean, yeah, definitely from a programming point of view as well, because blackout followed by Brink's job, that one, two punch is definitely the result of feeling more confident about material. Yeah. Brink's job's just sassy. It's kind of like, you know, it's not really much of a song, but it's, but it's, yeah. it's a minute and a half long. It's cool for what it is. It's kind of smart ass. There's really nothing, no extra meaning in it. Like it sets the table perfectly for grounded because that's a fucking anthem. It's just a gorgeous song. It I mean, is. it's a beautiful, it's just be it's beautiful guitar. And cool I, love, I love the and, focus on that really delicately slow string bend. That's the thing that I always hang on as far as a hook on that. We weren't too jammy <laughs> right, right. at this point for that to be over four minutes. 
is that a ground. message song? What is uh, boys are dying on the street? I never really understood what the what he was. Um... Generally speaking, it would just be words that he thought sounded dramatic or cool together that had no particular meaning to any virtual situation. There are certain instances when it would be some sort of reference to friends or situations from his life. But I think in this case, it just the dramatic sound of the song. You could sort of write overwrought corny lyrics like that and right. get away with it it's certainly much more bald-faced than things he'd written about previously that's for sure but it works and it's uh it's a great song thank you i didn't have anything to do with it but i enjoy playing it live. yeah i definitely played drums on this but what you know whatever anybody can play drums on it if they have two sticks i'm looking at the back of the album and it says crafted by bob nastanovich <laughs> yeah, yeah handcrafted it's artisanal pop it is. It is just like the pierogies that I'm dying to taste. Um, yeah, they're good. Oh, you've had all of them? I mean, I just did that thing. Parma for Payment was a wonderful experience. Um, really, really great. Really, really incredibly lovely people. The organizer, uh, Marie and Michael and Lydia from the Rudy's in Parma. And if you get the lead story in Pitchfork. That there's not much going on in music that week. You could say that, but you could also use that as a gauge for your importance in music, because if you weren't important as a band, that would have been swept aside in a heartbeat. And your humility is uh, is embraced with open arms, sir. Serpentine Pad, another of a Brinks jobby kind of a deal. And again, with texturing, you know, you get grounded sounding even more of a punch in the dick than it would have. You didn't have it surrounded by Brinks job and, and Serpentine Pad. You know, that's the magic of the programming of, you know, the track listing here. Yeah, the sequencing was good. Serpentine Pad was recorded on one take. It's a tribute to one of the best records of all time, which is Pagan Icons by Saccharin Trust. It was one take. I remember I got in my car right after it was recorded and drove back home because I was sort of done. It was the last thing that was done on the record. Oh, cool. Obviously, it's super fun to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, And it's cool on this record because, you know, then we go into something that's, you know, motion suggests. It's a tricky little song. Always give up the vibe of a wonky carousel, which is great. Yeah, no, it definitely is that. I mean, the Guajira or the fish is, you know, sort of vital to the song. It's a groove. It was a difficult thing to pull off back in the day, but we're playing it this, in this year and it's so far so good. Although I'm yet to, to replace a fish as quality as the one of Malchus's that was misplaced and is now gone from Portugal. As good as it is, it really is a prelude to one of Stephen's great masterpieces, Father <laughs> to a Sister of a Thought. The feel of the song always it was redolent to me of the big sky in Colorado, if you ever have driven through. And, and yeah, obviously, it's the very pedal, romantic. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. It's like range life without the snideness. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, you yeah. know, it's alt country, as they say. <laughs> yeah, it feels more country. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't feel removed. You know, range life feels alt country. This feels like country. You know, there's a lot of really incredible bands on Frontier Records at the label out of Davis, California, including mm -hmm. one of the best bands of all time, Thin White Rope, <clears throat> certainly one of the best live bands. A lot of their best material preceded us, but they also would tackle a lot of different genres, and they were particularly strong at this type of song. It was a breath of fresh air, and it was a trick. Steven was anxious to, you know, find, find that groove, especially considering this mix of material. So there are songs all over this record that have a really, really mellow, groove you know mixed in with the chaos you know i think it's just one of these situations father was straight thought where everything fell into place and i think it was kind of easy for everybody in the band to play so 
whatever she came up with the composition was worked out very nicely it's a stunning song uh you guys are you don't know, ever do it bro i i always thought it was i'm not kidding man look I, well, thank you very much i like it too it's uh it's beautiful it's not the first song i think of when i think of pavement when i think of you guys i don't think of the you know mid to late 90s torpor kind of a stuff i think of you know you guys rocking the fuck out so i don't think of this right out of the gate but you could have pulled a whole record like this out and i would have greeted it with open arms it would have been boring so we did why we die instead yeah i'm just saying in a in an all in an alt universe here it it would have been a great record this is a classic i think it would have been more popular with the americana scene than we are yeah yeah but then we kind of downshift but at least when we we encounter like people from who adore the you know americana slash alt country scene like that hate songs like best friend's arm or flux equals rad then we can say oh we have this song you might like this far as your thought and they're like oh i like that one i hate all the other ones that's where the whitman sampler approach you know you gotta you gotta write something that appeal to cowboys there's a lot of them out there and cowgirls (laughs) that's right extradition this is you know for me from extradition through to kennel district it's a little bit of a sahara situation this is probably the toughest leg of of any pavement record extradition best friends arm grave architecture uh at&t is my favorite in that group but then flux equals rad and fight this generation it's my least favorite stretch in a pavement record there's this interesting thing where when when steve writes something that has the vibe of an anthem like fight this generation or we are underused (laughs) we are underused it feels like uh like he's intentionally fumbling a football i mean that's your take i mean uh i mean first of all the first song i think of when i think of pavement is clearly extradition is it no of course not but extradition (laughs) is a it's like kind of really back to that vibe of song one on the record we dance it's just a creepy little ditty it's just weird for the sake of being weird um that's all it is and it's right right. and it's good in its own way it's short um it was a fun way a fun thing to play live obviously you wouldn't want to play it um while jamming on that reading stage from thirty thousand people but in front of a pavement audience it was just a perfect little slime ball of a song that would lead you into something cooler best friend's arm was similarly awkward it's also very short it was just a challenging song i think this is where sort of a little bit of an era that steven you know was being a little self-indulgent and he returned to this sort of vibe extradition best friend's arm in particular on terror twilight um he skipped over it on bright in the corners because i think that bright in the corners just the way it worked out being reported at mitch he's obviously you know sort of a king of pop type producer and us being very aware of that and and sort of enamored with him all the songs you know that's kind of our record that sounds sort of most like fables of the reconstruction or something yeah yeah which is high praise for pavement from me to compare them yeah i mean especially that era so grave architecture is great it's really spooky and fun i mean it Wait, wait, wait. Before you go to Grave Architecture, I like Best Friend's Arm. The thing- it's cool. I mean, I like it too. It's not a discard. It's just, it's just intention. It's freaky for the sake of being freaky. I feel and like that endless couple- I feel like Stephen was trying to sabotage the two, but I, I could be wrong. I think he was trying his best at all times. I would imagine he that there'd be nothing else that would inspire him except to do his best. But, um, you know, there's a totally valid school of thought with as far as creativity goes to be able to create and destroy. I, I've read amazing and and fascinating interviews with 
Jeff Tweedy back when he was abusing painkillers when he was talking about the song Spider's Kid Smoke. Because I remember hearing early iterations of that song in a folk context that were so beautiful you could cry. And then he saw, he pulled the tune right out of it, uh, made it a Krautrock tune, and that's the version that's on A Ghost is Born. And he did it on purpose. He, he destroyed it on purpose because he was interested in that at the time. I don't think that would make Stephen lazy. I, I think it's just maybe something he was potentially interested in doing, maybe not. All I'm trying to say is, uh, as somebody who's been creative his whole life, if I snatch an idea from the ether, and right. this is now my idea, and I want to fuck with it, I want to mangle it, in no way makes me a lazy person. It's just another way to, you know, shake some more juice out of it and squeeze some more sparks out of the idea. So th that's why I'm curious if, you know, an endless coda was something that Stephen was doing, just kind of jog some some interest out of the creative process for him. He would be the kind of person that would have a pretty good idea when he reached the point of going to the studio of how he wanted everything to work. You know, there might have been a little twists and turns here and there and like, you know, doing mixes a certain way. If he was going to make a song and then tear it apart and reconstruct it or whatever, he would have already done that before he reached the point of going to the studio. And, you know, sometimes like you take a song like here, there's like an aggressive version, a mellow version. It's like, you know, whatever <clears throat> keeps him and the audience on their toes. And all of those versions are equally amazing. Thank you. And then Grave Architecture, a kind of a twisty little Latin-y number. It's supposed to be like kind of a spooky Halloween-themed vibe. <laughs> I love it. I lyrically love it. and stuff. It's also this weird thing about Wowie Zowie that some people sort of get, some people are sort of put off by that we're sort of play acting a lot on this record. Like we're um, not just a bunch of typical 28 year old dudes. I mean, it could have come from the fact that every album is directly a reaction against the previous one. And Crooked Rain, Crooked Wayne was just like, almost like changed our audience in a way that a huge percentage of our sort of original fans, our OG, as they say, were sort of put off. So I don't know if there's a certain amount of yearning to get them back or please huh. them, but we play by our own rules. So, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, great. And we were having a lot of fun here so that, you know, that's, that's a big part of it. The pressure was sort of off, even though it was very much on, you know, all we could really do was just like, you know, concentrate on amusing and being ourselves and the comfort zone, like easily provided that opportunity. So great architecture is great in a way. It's is that, cool is that the record. More, sometimes is that more Billy Squire in there. I'm, I'm hearing more Billy Squire quotes in there. The only Billy Squire song I know is The Stroke, and I think it's weird that you keep bringing up Billy Squire like you're stuck in the first time you turn on FM radio when you're nine or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm just hearing musical quotes from him. I'm not trying to believe it. I mean, next time I ask Stephen, I'll ask him if one third of his songs are influenced by Billy Squire to give you an answer. Okay. All right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Sure. I, I don't care what time of the day or night, call or text me. Uh, <laughs> AT&T. Call uh, 4.30 in the morning. You can call me anytime you like. AT okay, thank you. Another uh, sort of mid-tempo chug. This is my favorite song in this section, I think. I mean, AT&T really, Mark Eibold in particular, really loved this song. It was great. It was really fun to play. I think it's actually one of the most poorly edited pavement songs. I mean, of course, in the... 60s 70s and 80s there were so many songs that because of radio would just like it would just fade it out and then and then if you listen back to them now and you love them they're like how come they just didn't like you know play this longer which in order for me to say that it has to be a song i really love like i want this to go on longer whether it's juice newton or whomever so at&t <laughs> i think actually would have awesome. been 
That's awesome that she's the only example you could think of of songs that you just want to go on forever is Juice Newton. That's the best. And no problem. And um, so, and true. Uh, AT&T, I think if, if it had that classic old school 1975 fade out at about 302, would have been much stronger. It's just like a movie, when you go see a movie, like the new Elvis thing with Tom Hanks or something. If you get up and leave, like after an hour and 50, the movie's like, four stars you stay for the whole thing it drops to two and a half because like the last quarter of the movie is just sucks compared to the first part so i just don't think that we could figure out how to, i don't know i have no idea it's like it's weird to listen to because the last 45 seconds of the song sort of ruin to me not ruin but they damage what, what could have been a, a better song i mean to a major fall a lot of bands have a really great set of ideas and a song that should be three and a half they end up just falling in love with not only playing it but also like the own self-indulgent groove that they're in and it goes on for 620 this is a case of a song that i mean it could have been a single yeah uh, whatever the hell that means i honestly uh feel like you could be addressing best friend's arm but i i never saw it with this one i, I really well, best friend's arms just kind of a ditty i mean best yeah, friend's uh, arms just it's just it's frivolous and then flux equals red kind of more throwaway screamo from the serpentine pad well just uh, like when we love we still love punk rock sort of um, yeah, message yeah. being sent there that's all fight this famous, famous punk rock band um fight this generation to me was what's going no, on nobody really thinks of pavement as being a band that fights anything at least effectively <laughs> so yeah. it's a certain amount of like look we're not fighters man it's because we're not good at fighting. This has always been an endlessly interesting song to me. And here's why. It's a great song. It's really sort of a song that's for live performance. And then it can take on so many different forms of live performance. And there's um, a lot of things going on in the song. It's not the greatest set of lyrics per se, but it was never really intended to do that. It's more about like sort of play acting that you're some sort of like really kind of like dramatic force and that you're, you know, that you're, that you can build intensity. It's got, it's got cool dynamic, but really it was just a blueprint for live performance. And at its best live, it would be six and a half minutes long and it usually would be sort of towards the set. It was, it was something that we could sort of jam out mm -hmm. in a way to pretend like we were like a really cool rock band. I love that you take pot shots at yourself, but you know, <laughs> who doesn't? What's interesting to me about this song is that anytime there's you know an anthem that seems to make moves in the direction of being a generational anthem it feels like a a walking away from expectations of doing something like that and it seems like it comes up empty on purpose as a statement in itself and that to me makes it a hell of a lot more tantalizing as a prospect above and beyond it being a song so i can hear the words that i'm saying and i know I've thought too much about it over the years, but is there any truth at all in what I'm saying? I don't think that we would ever be so vain to think that we could write a generational anthem. So maybe it would be more along the line of being sarcastically pointing out what a ridiculous idea that is. I think that's what I mean more than anything, if that's what that is. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, but, you know, but then like, 
while playing it live, you could pretend that you were doing that. So it made it super fun. Right. Right. I mean, so, I, I mean, I, yeah, it was just like, you know, again, this record is very theatrical and like in order to reach that point where, you know, there's a lot of making fun of yourself on here and kind of letting out a breath of fresh air, you know, being pavement in their late twenties going on on this record, the record business didn't matter. Everything we did up to this point was all about overachievement and like, and being very fortunate. And so at this point, we had established ourselves. Some people might think of it as self-indulgent. What it really was, was us completely being ourselves and enjoying being where we were. It was good fun, as they say. And that comes across on this record. It definitely seems like the reward is you get to stretch out and do whatever the fuck you want. Then I mean, most comes- people thought of it as being like really self-indulgent, being flippant, and like not really caring about our audience or anybody's impression. There's a certain amount of reaction to this that was just, this is pavement trying to push away success. I mean, not so. I mean, it's just not true. <laughs> who would do that? You know, we weren't like people who who won like the Lotto Grand Prize when we finished doing the touring year in Crooked Rain. I mean, like, yeah. you, kind of, you kind of always feel like when you're a band, like us that really to be honest with you if you look at the tour schedules from my standpoint every penny was earned i mean every pair of free levi's was earned are you augmenting your income at this point or are you just fully augmenting in what regard i got free shoes and free pants no i mean are you making enough money to completely get by being in the band yeah i mean yeah and i'm making a living doing the uh tour in which we got severely overpaid that helped that was in 95 i mean our Booking agents, um, I remember doing that tour, like, there's no way that we should have been so high up on the bill. And there's no way that we should have gotten paid what we got paid, which was 15000 a gig. And we toured in minivans, and we did it so cheaply compared to everybody else. It was all about maximizing profits. So sure, it was torturous. Mm-hmm. We were completely out of place. Like, nobody paid attention to anything we did except for the 150 payment fans that would come to the thing that overpaid to get in the first place. Um, so yeah, you felt terrible for them because the band they wanted to see more than any others, aside from Sonic Youth or Hole or something, was us. And I, you know, I felt terrible making these pavement enthusiasts pay ridiculously exorbitant fee to see that thing and look forward to the forty-five minutes or whatever each day that would be pavement. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got past the point of even like making set lists. So, and you know, we're very much in a wowie zowie frame of mind. You know, maybe maybe that made the whole thing more bearable. It wasn't unfun. I mean, obviously, we're out there with having a great time playing ping pong every day, bowling at night. You know, hanging out with some of our heroes. Jesus Lizard be top of the list. As as far as acts of greatness as well, I want to talk about uh, a related matter, and that is the creation of what I believe to be the greatest. Scott Canberg song on Wax, Kennel District, uh, completely gorgeous. One of the best songs on this record. It could have been a huge hit, I believe. And I think it's, I believe it's his greatest musical accomplishment. Argument here, I mean, it's, it's you know, one of the reasons that we play it just about every live set. It's a very good effort on his part. And it's a really good song. And it's very uh, I think moving. That, you know, he, he had a lot of confidence in his songwriting at this point, and um, you know he'd spent a lot of time on tour. It's also kind of cool because you know I think Stephen would prefer more um, songs like this from Scott because you know he doesn't always want to be the front man. But I mean, I think one of the things Stephen really loved about being in Silver Jews is that the focus really wasn't on him, and he could be a right. sidekick and concentrate on his guitar playing. So, and, and you know what's crucial about this song is that 
you know, this album is a hell of a lot of fun, but there's, it's not loaded with moments that I would call emotionally moving. I don't think that's what Stephen was going for. This song sweeps through at a crucial time in the record for me and recenters me on listening to the record because the final stretch of the album is a great stretch. Kennel District, Pueblo, and, and Half a Canyon, those three especially right in a row are amazing. So, this one kind of perks my ears back up again. Pueblo is, you know, again, part of that comeback story at the end of the record, a la that movie My Bodyguard from 1980, with the ever-loving Where the Fuck Is He Now Chris Makepeace. Do you love Pueblo? Yeah, it's a groove. It's called Pueblo for a reason. At that point, we played a lot of shows in Albuquerque and El Paso and Phoenix, and it's just kind of a southwestern U.S. deserty vibe on it. It's just a, um, a fun twist. It was quite difficult to pull off something that mellow live. I'm looking forward to playing it this year because Rebecca enhances it a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, one of my greatest moments as a live musician personally occurred on the song where I used to just play Moog on it. And for some reason, it all came together one night at a place in San Francisco called Great American Music Hall. Oh, and yeah. I, you know, completely by accident because I don't know what I'm doing. I came very accidentally came up with a really cool Moog solo on this. And I wish that. It was a sort of an amazing evening for me where I felt like I uh, was a good synthesizer player when in reality I just got lucky and there's no way I could kind of dupe that. We didn't play it too often because it just, it would lag. It's also been around for a while. You guys played it at an earlier John Peel session. Yeah, it's been around. It had been around and we just needed to stick it on an album because it is sort of goes back to Father to Sister of Thought on this album. Pavement, who at one point could be pigeonholed as a certain type of band, completely embracing and tackling other styles. Um, because that's you know we listen to music that way so why shouldn't we try to play that way so it was, yeah, just yeah. A, it was a different sort of vibe you know half a cannon sort of a tip of the cap to a lot of the bands that we liked in the late 80s and early 90s i love I mean, the key i love the keys on that one it kind of reminds me of question mark and the mysterians you're right there's a tip of the cap to and we do this quite often to bands for our era there's definitely a love and appreciation of stereo lab mm-hmm. shown on this song and world trucks um, who was a, a favorite of David and Stevens in particular. To round things out, we got Western Homes. It's a 55-minute record. We have three sides of a double album. You know, just to reference The Sundays again, if The Sundays came out with a fourth record, I would really keep my fingers crossed that Harriet Wheeler stayed doing what she was great at doing, which is to take me and transport me to ethereal worlds far, far away. But Steven is a songwriter whose concern only seems to lay in the area of growth, thank God, because it suits him perfectly. He grows very well. And this album is a document to that. Doesn't want to stay in one place for too long, lest he gets bored. This record's great for him, great for everyone else. But it always felt like there was a bit of him trying to shake an old crowd and get some new people on board. Ultimately, I don't like it as much as you or others. I give it three stars. Still a solid record. Okay, cool. Are you a fan of The Laws? <laughs> Lee, Lee Mavers purchasing the desk with the, the 60s dust on it? Yeah. If you played on this record and it, it sort of experienced this record, it was just a very joyous um, experience for me. And so I mean, it's, a, it's a five. I mean, I can understand how it would be like a lot of people's fourth or fifth favorite pavement record i think that that really is more indicative of people's taste exactly it's it's just a strange record you know so people who like sort of strange music or 
you know, there's a lot of kind of more obscure vibe here mixed in with, you know, some really fantastic pop songs that I think that you clearly showed that you really like. It was all over the place. Um, It was very entertaining to be a part of it. It was really entertaining to play it. It was a real comfort zone record. We were more of a unit here, um, even though it sounds disjointed than we ever were before. And I think that we certainly carried that over to Brighton Forms. And you give this, this is your favorite, right? You give this a hard five, five, hard. Yeah. yeah. I, I just use five, but yeah well there's also some outtake material on the double cd repackaging which by the way uh if you don't own these on compact disc or whatever format it's beautifully put together the packaging on all this stuff the completest nature of the second disc it never leaves you wanting for more but there's a few just stray tracks that clearly feel like jams uh soul food sorted sentinel and stray fire stray fire is really the only piece that could really be called a song, but even that stretching it. 1995, Rattled by the Rush EP, which I actually did reference before when I went to my friend Rick's house to, to hear the single and my initial disappointment in realizing that you guys went to a place that I wasn't as quite as interested in going. We're really talking about the other material here. The EPs were always a very crucial part of the process. Stephen has referred to the EPs, you know, the first half of your career as shadow album material. So intimating that it's as important as the canon material. I find that the EPs from here forward are of a different caliber. There's always cherry pickers, but for the first time ever uh, on Rattled by the Rush, there's what I call skipperoos. Brink of the Clouds and False Scorpion are, you know, not what I would deem essential pavement. Easily Fooled, however, uh, originally known as the Sutcliffe Catering Song, is, I think, pretty uh, pretty cool. Uh, overall, Rattled by the Rush EP, I give it two stars, but Easily Fooled is, pre- is pretty sweet. Chad, I thought Brink of the Clouds was pretty cool live. Obviously, that Scorpion thing saved Skipperoo or whatever. Yeah, I mean, two. I'm not a, even a fan of, a huge fan of the A side. I mean, be a cool thing to have i guess you want to buy it i would say for completists only y'all give me six bucks for it (laughs) yeah nice yeah that's fair so you give it two stars as well sure okay so again in 95 here's your last release in 95 father to a sister of a thought single really we're talking about two songs here chris craft uh which is pretty cool it's definitely got balls to it and it's heavy in a more metal kind of way uh and muscle rock is a horse in transition which i like a little bit better i think is a pretty strong little pop song this uh single i give it two and three quarters stars muscle rock i completely forgot about that one what was the one you mentioned before that because i remember that one chris craft yeah that song actually could have been really good we played that that song was around for a long time and i think if we put more time into recording it it could have been really good. Original idea of that song was good years before, certainly a lot in 94, that versions of that were played live. I mean, the A side's so strong, I get four stars, and I like one of the B sides, so four. Yeah, I'm uh, frankly, I'm I'm really the two and three quarter stars is only referring to the B side material. B sides, yeah. 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 I, look, I look at the product as a whole, man. As a whole, I would give it three and a half stars. Different thing. Let's get your star ratings right then, man. You got to consider the A <laughs> I'll give side. you two. I'll give you an alternate one. So two and three quarters and three and a half. There you go. Cool. All right. So 1996 kicks off with a very unique release for you guys, Pacific Rim. I'm sorry. Pacific Rim, Rim EP. Recorded in 95, released uh, January 23rd, 96. And this is just you 
Steve and Steve West. The session had actually been booked for a Silver Jews recording. David didn't show. You couldn't afford to waste the studio time. You threw down four songs. Oh, he showed. He showed. What, what was he just, was it a crack afternoon kind of a deal? Is that what was happening? What is that? You know, was he just uh, inebriated? No. First of all, Peyton Pinkerton, who ended up being in, in the Silver Jews band, who's one of David's best friends from Massachusetts, took like a 26-hour bus ride down for that Silver Jews session from like Northampton. David showed up and he just got in the studio easily where he'd been before. Maybe he was there for like two hours. Keep in mind, payments case, we're all extremely exhausted because we just finished tour like three or four days before. So Steve West, myself, and Steve Alpus, you know, wanted to do this because, you know, we love being in Silver Jews. David just walked out and drove he, home. Did he get pissed off about something? No, he just was uncomfortable, I suppose. He was belligerent and uncomfortable. And poor Peyton had to get in the car and drive three hours, three plus hours back to Nashville with him and then go home. <laughs> Thank God he ended up in the band starting with the next album. We all thought we were in Silver Jews, and we found out that we weren't in Silver Jews when we found out that he made what was supposed to be that record with a bunch of different people. So it's one thing to get fired from a band. It's one thing to find out that a band that you helped, that you were an original member of, that you've been kicked out of, um, and you find out um, through like Drag City's new releases page. Why, though? I mean, did you ever get a clear handle on why? I think it was just, I mean, it's pretty obvious he was just sick of people not separating pavement and silver cheese because there's three members of pavement in the band i mean so it's just like when i worked with him the first leg of his tour as the tour manager and steve west was the sound man and he finished four or five weeks of touring and we we had great fun myself and steve west I, i'd get to play a couple of songs and west was the front of house sound man we got along with the band extremely well i mean just fantastic people tony crow and brian kotzer Willie Tyler and Peyton, we were having fun and David just fired us completely out of the blue because he he thought that the tour felt too pavementy, which <laughs> um, when basically your entire crew is members of pavement, then you you know you, that might be a side effect. Right. So yeah, he took off and like Drag City, I guess it paid for all this studio time, which, you know, they run on a very strict budget. You know, those guys aren't rolling in cash. You know, um, they've worked really hard. You know, they're good hardworking, very ethical people always pay on schedule. They treat their fans extremely well. They put out hundreds of records. They're good friends of ours for years. We did not want them throwing away all of that money. So um, we contacted Dan Koretsky and told him that payment will make the most of this time. There's a couple of things that we needed to do for compilations anyways. And so we took those, I think it was three or four remaining days and sort of gathered ourselves and you know, went back to Sherman's and um, where we always stayed in Memphis. I was always curious about these four songs. Were were they, had they already been written or were they written for this? Mostly created and fleshed out on the spot, which is kind of exciting. All right. So that's really good to know. And I always, I mean, give it a day. I think give it a day existed. Okay. But, so that's, that's the best song on the, on the thing. Well, that's, yeah, that's a really great pavement song. I think everything on, on there is, pretty good for for what it is i mean like listen just i mean obviously it's not as good as watery domestic but um it's not it's considered nowhere near as essential but i think that it's a it's a very cool pavement record if you know the circumstances i always you know for a long time now i've known about the rushed circumstances and the you know the oddness behind it oh no it was just like taking advantage of pretty affordable studio time at a great place trying to make the most of what we traveled down there for when we were 
needed to go home. Look, give it a give it a day is great. The frankly, if all that had been accomplished was the writing of the line, I've got all this Harvard LSD, why won't anyone fuck me? That would have been enough. That's a good enough line to make the most of those sessions. But uh, Saginaw is also really cool, kind of a trippy little uh, slice of psych, uh, which is a vein you guys didn't too often explore, uh, but you did it very, very well. Uh, Saginaw is great. And I Love Perth is cool. Overall, in a sense, based on the circumstances, this is kind of a masterpiece. It's not as good as you know some of your earlier EPs, but I give this one three stars. To me, I mean, I Love Perth was just a sweet little fun bass, very basic pop song. One interesting part of this experience for me is that I had no keyboard there because I didn't tend to play keyboards on any of the Juice material. So they just had this big gray Korg thing I'd never messed around with before. From my standpoint, I got lucky on I Give It A Day, but also on Saginaw. It came up with cool stuff. And yeah, you're completely right about Saginaw, which is S-I-C because it's misspelled. Yeah. Um, I love using that the, word. Yeah, and thank you. Or That's cool. And um, yeah, yeah. I, give, I would give it four. I would give it four because I think it's, um, obviously it's near and dear to me. I would give it a four that it's just a good record. And I think that the three of us, you know, we'd all been in Silver Juice together. We had the benefit of also being pavement together. You know, there's a certain amount of closeness here. It was just a good time. We got a lot accomplished. Things were very efficient. Things fall into mm -hmm. place. And, it, you know, the fact that there wasn't, there was just bonus time. So, yeah, it was cool. Great little artifact. As far as your efficacy as a band, for anyone can be fucking, can be creative given unlimited time, unlimited budget. But if you find yourself in a situation like this, a predicament, a record company is only only hoping that they have somebody as accomplished as you guys behind the wheel. Moving forward, you guys didn't release a lot of stuff in 96. There's four other releases that encompass uh, or house some material from you guys. 1996, again, I Shot Andy Warhol soundtrack, Sensitive Euro Man. Solid song, yet relatively inconsequential as well. I give it three and a half stars. Yeah, I, I mean, that's overrating it, in my opinion. So two and a half. Okay. Um, homage to Descendants, a tribute album. It's a hectic world. I don't think it was really intended to be like a serious statement or anything, but I give it one and a half stars. That's fair. I've heard it once. I mean, it's, I think, yeah, no, it's basically rather forgettable. Schoolhouse Rock, Rocks compilation, No More Kings. I give that three stars. That was made during the Pacific Gym recording part that was sort of the oh, obligation cool. from that, that whole was, session yeah that was the obligation that we had to mm -hmm. our dear friend jackie ferry who had tour managed us as well she sort of put together that comp compilation that, and so that was one of the side benefits of having that time is that we had an opportunity to do that and it was great fun it was just three of us it was great fun so again i would i would for what it was you know a song in a schoolhouse rock compilation and then also listening to that compilation where i think it's actually in terms of pavement slot on that compilation it's pretty cool so um, and i think we also picked a really good one and um, yeah. so I'd, yeah. i would give it, i would give it four uh my favorite song from this 1996 period where you're just kind of you know uh releasing cast off songs is painted soldiers from kids in the hall brain candy which I saw that when it was in the theater. I loved it. To me, this is what successful mainstream pavement would have sounded like had you guys attempted to double down on Cut My Hair. I give it three and a half stars. I don't think it's a major piece of work, but it is, I believe, it would have been a way forward had you taken it. Yeah, it's a really cool Scott Camberg um, composition here. 
And, oh, that uh, is Scott? Yeah, the video was fun. It had that band Baruka Salt. It's a funny video, also made by the guys from Drag City. It is very mainstream, sort of alternative rock radio sounding. It could have come on after a Baruka Salt song, who probably made more of an impact on alternative rock radio in the mid-90s than we did. Scott was writing some catchy songs during this time. He really was. Scott can write catchy songs. But these in particular, I mean, Painted Soldiers and... Just Painted Soldiers is him. But I'm referring to that and Kennel District as... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Dave with Ikea, same family. Right, right. Perhaps it's a shame he didn't have more stuff. Yeah. Um, Because that would have, you know, again, Stephen likes that rule of shifting the focus from stage right to stage left. So this was not a sense of, you know, here's 10 songs and Stephen's saying you only get two per album. It's just he had to. It was just like Scott would show up with four or five and two would fit. Right, right. Or one or whatever. Or zero zero in the case of Terror Twilight. What do you give Painted Soldiers? Three. Three, okay. Is that a peanut butter sandwich? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Is there any jelly on that or no? Um, there's um, a little bit of Loganberry, I think. A little bit of Loganberry jam. No shit. Look at you, man. Do you uh, slice off your crusts? You do, any, you do anything eccentric and idiosyncratic to your bread? Well toasted. Oh, you toast that? I like the crunch. You're not using a plate, are you? You just have a napkin? No, I'll clean up my mess after this. But no plate, right? I mean, sometimes, but... You know, the table's pretty loaded with stuff. So right now you just, you got it uh, in your hand, but there's no plate you're setting it on, right? I got a pretty good grip on this baby. <laughs> a sandwich is such a personal food, much more so than a plate of food. <laughs> I never uh, thought about it. I think about it all the time. This is uh, <laughs> constantly. It's this a- is the difference between you and, you and me. I think you have a more active mind, except in certain categories. <laughs> Which categories are those? I need to hear that. Differences between sandwiches and full plates of food. <laughs> I guess we'll just leave Bob with his sandwich right now. I hate to come between a man or a woman and their sandwich. We'll catch you next Sunday where we're going to be exploring in depth the time that pavement spent slaving away on Brighten the Corners. That's right. We're here next week for Pavement Volume 5. Thanks so much for tuning in on Discography. Discography.